Welcome to the Fresh RN Podcast. The information contained in this podcast is meant to supplement your existing knowledge and not replace it. Always refer to your state board of nursing, standards of care, and respective institutions' policies to guide your practice. All identifying patient details have been changed to protect their privacy and remain compliant with the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act of 1996. Thanks, nurses. Stay fresh. This is... Uh... I don't want to say I have to pee when I'm on a road trip until it's... Actually, I have a little hunch that then there was a little tipsy when she filled on the road trip. What's up, guys? Welcome to the podcast. This is an episode on pain management. Um, my name is Katie Kleber. Hey, my name's Elizabeth Mills. And I'm Alyssa Stafford. And we're going to do this episode on pain management because it is not quite as straightforward, I think, as I thought it would be when I became a nurse. Like I thought it's like, oh, patient wants pain meds. Here you go. That's it. It's a little bit more involved in that. And it is, there's, it's a little bit more complex than that too, because we also have um, a large issue in the United States with um, opioid addiction, which is what we use a lot for pain control in the hospital. So that's something that's very important to consider as well when you're providing care, especially if you have a patient that struggles with, um, with addiction. So we're going to talk about a few different important aspects of managing pain. And the first one is setting realistic expectations. So if I said to you, I'm going to treat your pain, that may mean something different to other people. For some person that might mean, hey, it's going to be controlled to a certain degree. But to someone else that might mean, I'm going to have no pain at all. And it's important to be on the same page as your patient about what pain management, not pain elimination, will look like. Because some people, and I've definitely had patients before, expect to be pumped full of pain meds till they don't feel any pain. Mm -hmm. And that is dangerous. And I don't know if people realize how dangerous high levels of pain medication are. And have any of you had a patient that had too much pain medicine and you had to give them Narcan? Oh, yes. yes. Yeah. And I bet you asked 20 nurses, 18 of them are going to say yes. <laughs> and Nar Narcan is a medication you administer when some it's the opioid reversal agent. So um, it knocks off all those, the opioid receptor things. And all of a sudden they weren't, they were had no pain and now they have all of it. And <laughs> so avoiding that's really important. But the, the big first thing is to set realistic expectations. Um, you know, you had blank surgery or you have a chest tube. You had a thoracotomy. That's a pretty painful procedure. You know, um, setting realistic expectations for what pain management is going to look like and definitely differentiating that between pain, that and pain and, and, and pain elimination. Did you guys have anything to add on that or is that? No, I think that's an important concept. Pain yeah. control does not mean pain elimination. Yeah. And, and I feel like that's a newer thing that we are getting into now, like. Mm -hmm. differentiating that I feel like it's newer versus you know I think but I remember you know reading and watching things about this whole opioid epidemic and how doctors express frustration where 10 years ago they weren't treating pain enough and pain is this sixth vital sign and give all these pain meds give all these pain meds and now we've tipped the scale yeah and giving the exorbitant amount of pain medications that can be requested or or people believe is appropriate non non-physicians non you know the patient experiencing the pain may not realize how 
inappropriate that dose would be and, you know, those kinds of things to consider. Next important thing is proactive education. So, you know, like we said, a patient has blank procedure surgery, having a realistic expectation of what kind of pain they'll experience. So if they had um, a, a cardiac catheterization of their um, femoral artery and they have chronic back pain, knowing that they're going to have to lay flat for a certain amount of time and expecting that's going to be uncomfortable. Once I had a patient that had that procedure and they had back pain baseline and they wanted a continuous morphine drip. And it's like, I can't begin to tell you how completely inappropriate that would be. Um, medic medically speaking and how doing that would be negligent, but that's what you want, you know? Mm -hmm. So setting those, um, providing this proactive education about what to expect. So, hey, I'm going to do a cardiac cath on you, but I see that you have chronic back pain. It's going to be uncomfortable until we can get you up or whatever, you know, we're going to have to deal with being uncomfortable to a certain degree, you know, that kind of thing. Um, also very important to utilize pain scales appropriately. There's many different pain scales. The pediatric world has some. Um, the most common one is the zero to 10. At rate your pain on a scale of zero to 10, zero being no pain, 10 being the worst pain in the world. Well, worst pain in the world is very subjective. It's very, well, this feels awful and I'm experiencing it right now, so it's very easy to rate that as a 10. But realistically, a 10 means it can't get worse. It means you're unconscious. It means you can't communicate to me how bad th this pain is so bad you cannot communicate. So if you can verbally tell me a 10, it's not a 10. I love the stick figures with like the, <laughs> the blood the coming arms. out of their eyes. <laughs> yeah. This is a 10. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, their limbs are chopped off and like. <laughs> I tried to put that in my latest book or no, in that admit one book for patients, but there was. <laughs> that was pretty funny. Not very sensitive. I had a nurse one time that said a 10 is like sticking your hand into a pit of fire. And I thought, well, that's pretty descriptive. Or I've heard people <laughs> say burning alive oh, well, yeah. or being mauled by a bear. <laughs> and I have said those to patients. Neither before. one I want to experience to see what pain of 10 is really right. Like. But, right. that, you know, that's an important point is, you know, I, don't, I wouldn't even want to experience that kind of level of pain. So it was the pain I'm really having a 10. Right. But. So it's important So because if they're not rating it appropriate, because a lot of time your PRN medications will say, hey, Norco for moderate pain rated four to six yeah. and Percocet for six to ten or and then morphine for eight to ten. Yeah. So if the patient's not rating it appropriately, they're getting inappropriate medication administration. So it's important that they understand the scale appropriately. And it's also helpful if you're able to catch them before their surgery or before whatever so that they understand that scale. It's easier to understand that when you're not in pain than when you are. Um, also, proactively, it's important to tell people, let me know when your pain is getting worse as opposed, I'll, I'm, I am someone that doesn't like to bother anyone until it's unbearable or until I, I don't want to say I have to pee when I'm on a road trip until it's unbearable you know like i don't want to alert the troops until it's absolutely necessary but it's important to empower your patients and let them know you're not bothering me i want you know if this norco works now um it's important that i give that now instead of in 45 minutes when it's unbearable and now that norco doesn't work or it doesn't work as effectively as it would have so that is really important to let because i did have a patient actually i think only a few patients that expected after a surgery to uh, after not not a I wouldn't say minor but not major expected routine pain medic medication administration 
oral pain medication administration when I'm like, and I was a newer nurse, it's like, well, this is as needed. I don't bring this in until the patient wants it. And I ask him if he says he has pain. He says, it's no, but he thought he was getting pain medication mm -hmm. later. Mm -hmm. So the miscommunication, and he was upset. I got yelled at, but it was like, I didn't, I didn't know he didn't know. So it's important to, you know, hey, especially if you don't have scheduled stuff and they don't have a PCA, it's like, but they had something kind of painful happen. Hey, let me know when you want your pain meds and let me know before it's an emergency. And I especially let people know that if the pain medication they have ordered, like maybe a back surgery patient has Robaxin PRN and I don't routinely keep, we don't routinely keep that on the unit. I need to give myself more buffer room to get it from pharmacy. Yeah. So keeping those kinds of little practical things in mind. And one other thing I also like to ask proactively before pain is horrific is what's worked and what hasn't. Like I had a patient that had a thoracotomy once and the only pain medication options I had was Percocet and two milligrams of IV Dilaudid. Wow. That's quite a disparity there. It is. And but to me, the Percocet I thought was going to be appropriate. Well, Percocet makes her vomit. So she that's not going to work for her. And I'm glad I asked her that before I had a thoracotomy patient vomiting because that would hurt even more. Mm -hmm. um, but the, also the two milligrams of IV Dilaudid was not appropriate. So I had, you know, that was too much. Gosh, I would have to be intubated if I had two milligrams of Dilaudid. I would first throw up all over everyone and then I would be <laughs> unconscious for three days. <laughs> Seriously. You know, so it was like, Asking someone, hey, have you had this before? What have you know that I think that's important. It's it's a simple, easy question to ask, and you can um, avoid some frustration. Yeah, and I I want to add, being the neuro nerd that I am, a neuro consideration and that proactive education too, because pain medications will interfere in your neuro exam. They mm -hmm. make patients drowsy. They can make patients act really crazy. Um, they could knock them completely out. So one of my regular conversations that I have with my patients, as well as their families, is it's important for me to be able to balance pain control with your neuro exam. I want to be able to give you enough pain medicine to keep it bearable for you, but I have to be very careful about giving you too much medication where I can't wake you up and do the things that I need to do, because mm -hmm. that might lead to some other things. And as long as I have found over the years that as long as I have that conversation on the front end with the patients and the families, because, you know, the families don't like to see their loved ones in pain either. Right. Right. That they have a better appreciation for the fact that, yes, so-and-so has a headache, but I don't want to give them any more morphine because it's getting really hard for me to wake that patient yeah. up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, that's kind of one thing that I like to do on the front end. The other thing is, is that pain Education as far as what kinds of pain medicines they have ordered, whether they be IV pain medications or pills by mouth, is, you know, a patient who's receiving nothing but IV pain medicines is going to be in the hospital a whole lot longer than the patient who can transition to pain pills. So, um, you know, I had a patient who didn't like the way the pain medicine made her feel, made her feel nauseous and didn't want the pills. So that's all she asked for was her IV stuff. And I said, well, I don't mind giving you the IV stuff, but if this if these pills aren't working for you, then I need to know that, and I'm going to go talk to the physician about getting some different medicines ordered. This doesn't have to be the only pain pill that you're getting. Um, so, and that's exactly what happened. I went and spoke with a physician. He ordered two different kinds of pain medicines pills for her, and the next two days that I took care of her, she never had anything else IV because then she understood that if I'm if I'm giving something by mouth, and I didn't really, if I'm giving you something by mouth. I can tell in the hospital if that's going to work for you at home. 
So like you're a patient, if they, if they have a prescription for Percocet and doesn't any, doesn't do anything but make the patient vomit, if she goes home with a prescription for Percocet, it's not going to do her any good. She'll mm -hmm. wind up back in the hospital. Right. But if I have had a conversation with a physician and they change her to Norco or Vicodin or Toradol or, you know, whatever, um, and that works for the patient, then now we have a plan for discharge. And now I know that I'm already going to be on a pain medicine that I know they can give a prescription for at home and that patient's going to have good pain control at home as well. And it's important if you have a patient that's regularly receiving IV pain medication to always be thinking about how, when are we getting oral? Yes. Why am I still giving, unless someone is intubated in the ICU, like this is, this is the kind of pain management we need to do right now. But if you've got someone on the floor that's continually needing IV pain medication, we got to ask ourselves why. Yeah. Is it a problem with the surgery? Right. Is it, you know, something else going on that they need more attention for, more imaging studies or lab right. work or whatever? Right. Or is does the patient think this is the only method of pain control? And they ask for it only because they didn't know they had another option. Or... They've said, hey, I need more pain meds, and the nurse just continually brings in what the last nurse brought in. And since post-op, maybe post-op, two milligrams of morphine was completely appropriate, but all night they've been getting two milligrams of morphine every four hours or two hours, and the day, next day just continues it. When the patient should have been started on oral pain medications, but n nobody kind of <coughs> took that step. Yeah. So that's really, really important. Um, so that kind of flows into the next one of providing predictability. So talking about that plan, hey, you know, you're going to experience some pain with this. It, it, we're going to give you some IV stuff for breakthrough pain, but ideally we're going to control this pain orally because you can't go home on the IV stuff. It's going to take longer to get home. The longer we're on that, the, the, the longer it'll take to get home. And you are going to experience the degree of discomfort when you're getting up and ambulating. But walking around is how you're going to get home. You know, those... Those kinds of conversations need to happen on the front end to get people out of the uh, uh, back home faster. And ultimately, they do have better pain control if they have these realistic expectations. They've had a conversation with the nurse. They know the plan because I think we assume our, pati our patients know more than they do. And patients don't always feel comfortable saying what they don't know. Or maybe they don't even know what they don't know. So it's important to there's no such thing as over communication in healthcare, and and. and any aspect of this. So it's important to do that. So like one of the things I like to do is have that conversation on the front end and then tell patients, Hey, this is the plan. You know, you were getting two milligrams of IV morphine every two hours, but you know what, when I come in and do my first assessment, I'm going to give you an oral pain medicine and we're going to see how that goes. I'm going to check back in after an hour. How, and let's see how, if that was enough. And then we're going to ride that for another hour. I'll give you the next dose when, when it's due and we're going to try and stay controlled with this oral stuff and then use the IV for breakthrough. Because we can always use that, but it's so, it makes, it's so important to get to the, that yeah. oral and stuff. And it's important that the patient understands you're not trying to say you're not going to give them pain medicine. Right. What you're trying to say is, I want to make sure that I have you comfortable with medicine so that you can get up, you can move around, you can do your coughing and deep breathing exercises mm -hmm. and, and, and be uncomfortable. But I you need to not be over-medicated and staying in the hospital too long. Right. And you know what's funny is I, not funny, but I met a nurse from, I can't remember, Scotland or England or something, who was actually working at the hospital I was at. And I was very curious 
you know, she came from a system of socialized medicine. And how is that different? And I asked her, what do you think? Because she had been working in the U.S. for quite a while at this point and had spent, you know, at least 10 years working as a nurse in the other country. And the, the, her main difference, the main thing she said was, you guys give so much narcotics and opioids here. It's astounding. Really? She was like, well, you never, culture. yeah, in, in wherever she was from, it was somewhere in the United Kingdom, was that you never get IV pain medication. In, in unless it's like cancer like cancer pain but to, you guys give it away like it's candy here <laughs> and i'm sitting here thinking you don't give ivy payment right really right so <laughs> i was pretty blown away by that because out of all the things the big differences between the two that was the first thing that came to our mind and we weren't even talking about pain meds or anything like that earlier that was just the first so i thought that was pretty interesting but so and that kind of leads into the next thing so what do you do have either of you question because i know my answer have you ever had a patient that you thought was manipulating you for pain medication yes yes <laughs> <laughs> emphatic yes me too i've had patients ask me for say they're allergic to everything except dilaudid which is not possible or they ask me to push dilaudid very quickly i've had patients tell me they want dilaudid with fenergan with benadryl all oh of goodness. which, all of which sedate. Yes. Um, you know. Yeah. I had, a long time ago when we used to use Demerol more. Mm -hmm. And I had a patient who was like, I'm not like, bring me my Demerol and Fenergan every four hours. And I'm not kidding. Like, you know, of course I'd say I'm nauseous. But then literally five minutes later, their nauseous. loved ones would be bringing them up a cheeseburger and fries and mm -hmm. a Coke. And it's hard being the nurse because you feel like you're truly being manipulated to give drugs that are much more potent than heroin. Well, it's, <laughs> it's well, I mean, we have a heroin epidemic in this country for a reason. Mm -hmm. But so, so I was not prepared for this at all. I didn't know this was a thing until I was in this situation and it was like, I just thought everyone was honest about their pain. And most people are. Yeah. Absolutely. If I have 50 patients, I would say 48 of them are honest. Well, and, you know, we've been taught a lot, too, that you can't, we cannot look at somebody and see what their pain level is. Right. We so can. just because they can be awake and eating a cheeseburger doesn't necessarily mean they're not having pain. So, you know, we as a nurse are trying to very figure out a way that we can look at the patient, use our assessment skills, mm -hmm. listen to what the patient's saying, and deliver safe dosing for pain medicines. And it's hard to do. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the reality is, is we're in a, there are patients that suffer from substance abuse disorder that have painful things happen to them. Absolutely. And they need pain control. Yes, or there's do. Or there's patients that don't have substance abuse disorder, but they have things going on where they require a lot more pain medication than someone else would. Um, you know, various disease processes and whatnot. Um, so actually, when I was, I, I wrote a post about this a while ago, just asking other people what, how they handled it. But I, I found, I came across a post that I really loved. It was written by Beth Hawks. She runs, she writes nursecode.com. I love her blog. She actually is a nurse educator and is a wonderful resource. And she wrote this great blog post called How to Cope with Patients Who Have Substance Abuse Disorder. Got a link to it on, our, on my blog. If you just Google that, it'll come up. Um, but she talks about six steps to really deal with this situation where you're frustrated that every 
you, you see that the patient has a timer on their phone for every three hours. Or you see, um, you feel like they're lying to you and you're spending more time dealing with that than with another patient who might not be stable or, you know, like something like that. So how do you deal with it? And she said, first she breaks apart or defines the differences between tolerance, dependence, and addiction, right? So there are very, those are, whoop, those are very different things. And I wanted, I wanted to go through those differences real quick so that you kind of also had the same under same definition. So tolerance is a normal physiological response to exposure of a substance over time. And I'm, I'm actually reading straight from her blog post. She says, think coffee. You require more caffeine to realize the effects you enjoyed when you first started using, which she crosses out. I mean, drinking coffee. <laughs> <laughs> There's tolerance to side effects. Um, which includes sedation or nausea, like from opiates. So you're toler you're more tolerant of those side effects. Um, tolerance to analgesic effects, which require higher doses to achieve the same pain relief or the same um, doses of coffee to achieve the same levels of alertness. So normal doses of may maybe normal in our eyes, doses of pain medication after a specific surgery aren't normal to that person with um, a level of tolerance. So so. That's tolerance, dependence. Dependence is physical dependence, which develops with repeated exposure to opioids. Um, so, and the American Society of Pain Management for Nurses state, position statement says, tolerance, withdrawal, and physiological dependence are expected responses to opioids and are not by themselves indicative of addiction. And then she goes on to, discuss the definition of addiction as defined by the American Society of um, Addiction Medicine. Addiction is a chronic primary disease of the brain characterized by an inability to abstain. People with addictive, I'm sorry, people with active addictions can't control their cravings or impulses. And here's the thing, though. Patients with addictive, I'm sorry, active addiction it's hard for me to say active addiction, mm -hmm. have pain as well. And perhaps they may even have more pain than other people that are undergoing the same procedure. Um, she says there's an, um, I'm not going to be able to say this right, there's a phenomenon known as opioid-induced hyper hyperglasia. Oh, I'm not saying that right, I'm mm -hmm. sorry. In which patients depend on op who depend on opioids have increased pain despite increasing doses of meds, which I thought was very interesting. So that, that's kind of the, what she, I thought it was really important to have a definition of that because I did not, I just thought you, you just want pain meds, but it's much deeper than that. Mm -hmm. And then, so, but then it's like, all right, how do you practically, practically deal with that? So she goes over six steps, which I will have a link to, so you can look at, look at what she wrote. But the first thing she says is to check your judgmental attitude at the door. And she says, I remind myself that I don't, I don't know how this person got to this place. What, what are these factors that led to this addiction? Um, any like things like, did his father leave him? Did someone hurt him? Is, was he utilized, this person utilizing drugs to kind of deal with that? How to, was that their coping mechanism? Um, you know, 
reminding ourselves that we haven't walked in their experiences. So I think that was really important and a little humbling to see step one of check my judgmental attitude, but I completely agree with it. Um, The next thing that she says is to be realistic. Um, Let's be realistic that if someone, you know, let's her, her example was people with DKA have high blood sugars. So substance people with substance abuse disorder, they're going to display specific, you know, behavior. So let's, let's not be surprised by that, I guess. You know what I mean? Um, the next thing she says is to understand your job. You're not going to definitely not going to cure this addiction in this, like, you know, most likely when someone's admitted, especially not for their addiction, they're not there to get it resolved. They're probably there to deal with whatever primary medical issue yeah. was there. That's so maybe something they got- I feel like I take home with me more than anything when I'm dealing with this situation was I'm not there to cure them. Yeah. Or, you know. To cure the addiction. Cure the addiction, yeah. And how likely would, even if you wanted to, how likely could you when you're dealing with someone who has an addiction that maybe they were in a car accident or maybe they had to have their appendix removed or maybe they had to have whatever ha- or whatever happened that brought them into the hospital. Maybe it was because of their addiction. But regardless, like we still have to deal with the pain or that issue and the addiction is just another layer of it. Right. And we're in the acute phase of treating blank. And, and treating addiction is a very long process. Yeah. So understanding your role in whatever step. Of course, maybe you are an addiction nurse, and this is very different than ap- approaching this situation. is very different. Um, the next thing she said is to take control of yourself and not your patient. If you're angry, it's your anger. If you're frustrated, it's your frustration, not the patient's. Um, and I love how she says this. I can only be manipulated if I allow it. So I thought mm. that was pretty profound. Mm-hmm. Um, the next thing she says is to not engage in a power struggle. And when this happens, you you and the patient lose. Um, and I'm going to just read directly from what she said. I've worked with nurses who use passive-aggressive behaviors and forget to medicate their patients. Wait until after changes shift or whatever. Failure to treat pain is profoundly wrong, unethical, and unprofessional. Nurses position, who position themselves as she or he as the gatekeeper of pain medication really need to rethink of how they're using their authority. Mm. Which I think it's very important. It's pretty strong. That's, oh, that's yeah. a really good point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love her blog. <laughs> Y'all got to read her. Uh, Clearly. I've never read a post from her that I did not think, dang, that was really good. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. She's wonderful writer and wonderful nurse um and the last thing that she says is to be professional again i'm gonna reread what she wrote i won't use stigmatizing terms such as drug seeker or clock watcher in handoff report i will simply inform the next nurse when this patient's pain med is due this patient deserves the same access to medication as edna my 78 year old female post-op hip surgery patient and the same dignity and vigilance Actually, I have a little hunch that Edna was a little tipsy when she fell down and broke her hip. (laughs) (laughs) Good for Edna. I'm just kidding. (laughs) I will respect this patient as a fellow human being for who all I know is doing the best that he can with what he has, as we all are. So with that, I think that kind of wraps up our pain medication episode. Unless you guys had anything else to add on the topic. So takeaways. Educate your patient. Mm-hmm. Set realistic expectations. Yes. 
um, provide predictability. Um, and when you're when you find yourself dealing with a patient that you believe uh, you actually know or you believe has um, an issue with substance abuse disorder, check your judgmental attitude. Be realistic. Understand your job. Take control of yourself and not your patient. Do not engage in a power struggle, and be professional. And at the and also, it's really important to touch base with the provider and make sure that you have a plan in place for pain management that the patient is in on, agrees upon. And if you have a patient that suffers from substance abuse disorder and there are certain pain medications ordered and the physician is going to make changes to those, that physician needs to speak with that patient. I agree. There's no discontinuing this two milligrams of Dilaudid every every hour. And just disappearing. And disappearing. Yeah, really. and not, that, that conversation for the nurse is challenging enough. We need to uh, treat this as a team mentality and, and the provider needs to communicate this is the best i believe this is the best step are we all on board absolutely so and that's part of proactive education you can't make those changes without everybody being on the same page all right well thank you guys so much for listening if you want to check out nursecode.com she has a wonderful blog a lot of her posts are directed towards new nurses so i highly encourage you to check that out check out freshrn.com blog or um, freshrn.com slash podcast for some show notes and make sure to check out her specific blog post on nursecode.com entitled how to cope with patients who have substance abuse disorder by Beth Hawks. Thanks guys. Stay fresh. Damn crap, better hit the floor. All the other fellas better run for the door. Stop, drop and roll with me. I got the heat that